You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Thank you, Kelsey and worship team, for that incredible worship time. Amen. That, uh, that new song, how about that one? It's got, uh, that's, got that, that's got that late 60s, early 70s lick of my generation, doesn't it? Good bass runs and all that kind of stuff. Now that means that uh, we can play music that sounds like the 70s. We can't do things also that we did while listening to music that sounds like the 70s. <laughs> well, that's all behind us, but we can still enjoy the music. I'm wearing my hat this morning that my kids gave me a while back. It says, uh, it's all fun and games until someone needs an eye patch. That's right. And uh, got my Harley all fixed up and uh, had to ride, so I rode my Harley this morning. Didn't want to bother with fixing my hair. So if you're offended by the hat, well, we'll get you another way anyway, so you might as well be offended by the hat. I was going to say. going to be offended by something it's else. It's going to be something much worse if before not. It's, before it's over with. Uh, tremendous, tremendous time this morning. Good to see you. This morning we are continuing what we will actually complete next week, which has been about 12 weeks of All Systems Go, which has been a study of systematic theology. Theology is very, very important, and many of you are finding that out. Many of you have never uh, really dealt as, uh, as deep into some of the subjects that we've been uh, digging into as we've been doing it. And and I hope that it's been meaningful for you. It's been a great time for Derek and I to do this, and we're looking forward to this morning. This morning, we are dealing with what is called in theological circles, soteriology. Oof. You know, they always have these big words so that the average individual has to ask them, what does that mean, so they can show how smart they are. Exactly. Soteriology means simply the doctrine of salvation. It is the study of what the Scripture says about salvation what the Bible says about salvation, how we are saved, what Christ did so that we could be saved. And we're going to be focusing this morning on the theological underpinnings of salvation. And it's interesting, if you study world religions, virtually all world religions, uh, you will find that people talk about salvation as if it is something that they do. In fact, I like to say it this way, in world religion, salvation is always in the passive voice. It's always, a, I mean, it, it's, it's always in the active voice, not the passive voice. And that means that you are doing something to earn your salvation. You are active. But in Christianity, the word salvation is in the passive voice. It is something that is done for us. And the, the individual in all the world religions that I have studied, they're always this end, the end run of that thing is the individual is hoping that they have done enough to enter into eternal life. They hope that they've done enough of whatever it is that that particular system says you must do in order to gain eternal life. And so it's fitting. Or what were you going to say? Oh, it's just like it's the daisy approach to salvation. Oh, right? yes. The daisy he loves approach. me. He, he loves, loves me, me not. He loves me. He, he loves, loves me. me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And you want to you really want to you want to be sure you croak on a day when you can say he loves Love me, me because right. if it's a day when you didn't do enough, then he loves you not. Then you're sunk. Um, that's kind of an inside theological joke because there's another one. There's a tulip that we won't go into this morning. Uh, uh, maybe. Oh, maybe you will. Maybe okay. we will. Right. We'll see. Well, so what a sad way to live, though. 
to hope that you've done enough to enter into eternal life. So it is fitting that we've left this study on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, to the very end of our study. It's not the total end because next week is the total end when we are going to talk about eschatology. And eschatology, you're going to want to be here for this one, is last things, the second coming. Okay, so wow, wow, that's going to be fun, isn't it? Derek is going to, I'm going to leave the stage and let Derek do that by himself. Um, but that's going to be an interesting way to finish it off. It's because you don't want to get hit by the tomatoes. That's exactly right. <laughs> that are going to be thrown at me. And the truth of the matter is, if you don't understand well the other things that we've been studying as we come along here then you're going to have a difficult time yep. going to the scriptures and getting soteriology correct and so everything we've been doing informs us to be able to come to the scriptures and grasp and understand what the bible says about how to be saved and and for instance the last few weeks we've been talking about the condition of mankind anthropology the study of man but then in satanology the study of satan we talked about that as well some stuff and the scripture says we agreed or at least derek and i agreed <laughs> that the scripture is very clear when it speaks about that outside of christ we are totally depraved total depravity is is our nature we the scripture says we are the seed of satan the children of wrath dead in trespasses and sins and if you get that then you're going to be able to get the doctrine of soteriology. If you don't get that, that mankind can do nothing, then you're going to have a difficult time with the message this morning. Because you see, the truth of the matter is, if we are in the condition that the Scripture says that we are in, then everything must be God's work because we cannot do it for ourselves. Everything must depend upon Him. Everything is by His mercy and His grace and His work, not our work. Amen. Now on this question... Christians have struggled since the very beginning. Even in the first century church, this Christian community was struggling over this issue of what is the real condition of mankind. And that struggle has gone all the way up into our day. There's something in us, and we said this when we talked about anthropology, there's something in us that rebels against looking in the mirror and accepting the truth of who we are. That God says we are, from God's perspective, that He says you are depraved, you are spiritually dead. And, and I look in the mirror, and we look in the mirror, and there's something in our rebellious sin nature that says, well, no, I know I'm not the greatest person, but I'm not that bad. And and I'm, and I'm a holy dad and, and all those kinds of things. And we fight with this. And because of this fight, this issue has been struggled with and has been argued about through all of Christian history. So here's what we're going to do in the beginning. I'm gonna, we're going to take a short trip through Christian history, okay? A short trip of 3,000 years of Christian history. But we're going to focus on specifically this question of what are we as mankind in outside of Christ. What are we? How has this argument played itself out? Well, first of all, I'll talk to you about a couple of dudes named Pelagius and Augustine. Many of you probably heard the name Augustine, but many of you probably not heard of Pelagius. He's very important in Christian history for a negative reason. You see, because during the first three centuries, this issue was being debated back and forth among Christians. What is the condition of mankind? What does Scripture really say about mankind? Is it really true that we are fully depraved, that we are the seed of Satan in our ancestry with Adam, and that we are helpless and hopeless without any capacity to do anything spiritual on our own? 
Well, in the early 4th century, this thing came to a head. In fact, it came to a head-on collision between these two well-known theologians in that period of time. An influential theologian by the name of Pelagius taught that in the fall of man in the garden, what was lost was only a sense of intimacy with God. Pelagius taught that mankind in the fall did not fall into total depravity, did not fall into being completely spiritually dead in spite of what Paul says and what the scripture says, that there must be another meaning. And so he, he came up to this idea that, that man did not fall, he was just kind of wounded, and all that he lost was this sense of intimacy with God, but man was still able to make spiritual choices. Now, he went from that point to teach that if we are capable of making spiritual choices, then if we make enough of those spiritual choices, we are even capable of becoming perfect. And, and spiritual perfectionism is still alive today in some circles of so-called Christian faith. That comes right from Pelagius. He said, if we are able to still make spiritual choices, then if someone came along and made all the right choices, he has capacity within himself to be perfect. And so far, Pelagian... For Pelagius, salvation was a cooperative event between God and man. In other words, we kind of come along and God does his part and, and he gave us the truth and then we do our part and we make the right choice to follow that truth and then we have salvation. So from the Pelagian viewpoint, which is still very much alive today, salvation is a synergistic event. God and man working together in this spiritual partnership to end up with salvation. Now, in reality, I'm going to announce to you that that's wrong on both ends. Because on one end, that gives too high a view of mankind, right? And on the other end, it gives too low a view of grace. And I said to you last couple of weeks ago that there is an inverse relationship between your view of yourself and your view of grace. As your view of yourself goes up, then your view of grace must goes down because you don't need grace as much if you're better, better than this. Right. But as your view of self goes uh, down, then you see less and less and less you can do, and the more and more and more you depend upon grace, and where we're supposed to be is at zero about self and about 100% about grace. But Pelagius wasn't there. And so, but he was an influential individual. And then there was this dude named Augustine of Hippo. He wasn't a hippopotamus, but that's where he was from. They didn't even laugh at that. Somebody did. Who's got a sense of humor this morning? There you go, thank you very much. Uh, Augustine was, very, was another theologian, and he looked at the scripture and saw what the scripture said, that we are dead in trespasses and sins, and said, well, we're not just wounded in the fall, we are devastated in the fall, and left to our own devices, the nature of mankind will always choose rebellion against God. And that's what the scripture says. So he said salvation is not a synergistic event, it's not man cooperating with God, it is a monergistic, thus we get the word monergism, that is solely of God. Salvation is totally of God because we cannot make a spiritual decision on our own and for ourselves. And it, so it all came to a head in Christianity and it had to be decided. And can, since, can I just make a quick point? Go ahead. Yes, you can. About Augustine here, Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it. He, uh, when we think about church history, I think, I think most people have in their minds either a distinctly Jewish or a distinctly Roman kind of person. When you think of these old church fathers, you think of like Rome, right? Augustine, as he said, is from Hippo, which is actually where? Anyone know where that's at? The British Isles. 
British Isles. It's actually Africa. Mm-hmm. He's African. Like part of the time. Right. It? Yeah. So he, this is that. one of the first preeminent African church fathers, uh, and perhaps one of the most preeminent church fathers of the, uh, the early age. So I just think that's interesting that by this point, Africa ha- had already developed a very um, robust Christianity, which is just, again, something... Remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch right. in Acts. That was the... Yes first time the gospel actually went into Africa, and right. it was very strong in Africa from the very beginning, and thus Augustine yep. uh, in, in that area at that time. Of course, everything's changed a lot since then. The part that he was, he was from was not now part of Africa, but it was at that particular time. But here's, here's the idea. Since the scripture was all in Augustine's camp, then the, the church, for the most part, went Augustine's way, and Pelagius was declared a heretic for, for the teachings that he gave. See, Augustine's view rested solely upon Scripture, not the ability of humankind to figure it out and not this desire in man to be better than he actually is, but what does the Scripture say? So Pelagius had it wrong, Augustine got it right. And it looked like the issue was settled, but it wasn't settled because it has never been settled. So then from that period on, we move all the way through the Middle Ages, about 1,100 years of time. And as the centuries went by, the Roman Catholic Church was growing in more of its influence and its power. And what began to happen is Pelagianism slash syncretism began to evidence itself again in the development of the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. I don't want to go too deep on this, but I want you to understand that there is this constant battle, this constant fight. And so over approximately 1,100 years, the church, Roman Catholic Church, developed the seven sacraments of Roman Catholicism, and they weren't really finalized until the 1500s. Okay, that's when all seven were identified as the church would keep them. And the teaching of the church was that you must keep the sacraments in order to receive the grace of God because it is through the sacraments that the grace of God flows to individuals. So to have grace, to have salvation, if you will, in Roman Catholicism, it was then and still is, first of all, you must be a part of the Holy Roman Catholic Church because it is the only one that is authorized to dispense the sacraments. You must have it through a priest who is the only one authorized by the church then to administer the sacraments, and you must continue in them or you fall into a state out of grace. Are you getting this? So you've got to have the Catholic Church, you've got to have a Catholic priest, and you have to do it over and over and over because if you stop, then you will fall out of grace. So even though Catholicism today would deny it, that is really full-blown Pelagianism. Mm-hmm. It is a full-blown picture of that God does His part and I do my part, and when we put the two parts together, then we get salvation, but I have to keep doing my part in order to keep salvation. Now, once again, those two views were moving toward a head-on collision. We had it, first of all, with Pelagius and Augustine. We're coming through this 1,100-year period of time when they are about to butt heads again, and that's going to lead us to the time of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, and I'm going to leave it to Brother Derek to deal with that. Yeah, so the Protestant Reformation is kicked off by a German monk by the name of Martin Luther. Luther was a really fascinating individual. student of the word, a prolific lecturer and teacher. The, the man, uh, his, his homilies on the Psalms, and I mean, he, he was teaching more than, than any other monk that we know of during his time. 
through his... He was a Roman Catholic priest. Yeah, Roman Catholic priest, Roman Catholic teacher uh, at a seminary. And, uh, and, and through his study of the Word in lecturing, he rediscovers Augustinian grace. This idea that we have no capacity per the Scripture to come to God, but that we depend upon God's grace 100%. And, and keep in mind, up to this point, as James said, throughout the, 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 the medieval time, Pelagianism had begun to grow and develop and flourish in Roman Catholicism. It was dominating the Catholic Church. And so Luther's sudden shift away from Pelagian thought was very alarming for a couple of reasons. One, it marked a, a, a definite shift from Catholic thought. But two, and most importantly, it threatened the money of the Catholic Church. <laughs> It threatened the money of the Catholic Church. Follow the money. Absolutely, because he began to attack the practice of indulgences. Indulgences was a practice during this time where one could pay money to the Roman Catholic Church in bartering time for a loved one who had died out of purgatory. Now, we don't have time to talk this morning about purgatory, but let and me say a, a couple things. that practice is still in Catholicism. It's just not as evident. It's not as evident. And it's not practiced in the same way. So purgatory is, uh, for one, nowhere in the Bible. You're not going to find it anywhere. Uh, beyond that, it really, the problem with it is that it cheapens the cross. Because what it says is that Jesus' cross did not accomplish forgiveness of all sin. For the believer, that there is still a point in which if I don't make confession, if I don't practice the sacraments, like James said, then there are, t there are years added on to my life that when I die, I go into this holding cell, a place of torment called purgatory, and I have to pay that time out before I can enter into heaven. And so indulgences would allow me to then go, hey, uh, granny died. She's probably going to be in purgatory for a long time because she was mean. And, uh, and so I need... <laughs> and she hadn't been to confession in 20 years. She hadn't been to confession 20 years. And so we got to give as much money as we can to get her out of there because we love her. And that's because the Pope was trying to raise money to build St. Peter's Cathedral, yes, which yes. now stands in Rome. Absolutely. Lots of, lots of politics going on here. So... Luther begins to attack this practice because this practice is blatant Pelagianism. Because what, what, what we're saying then is you have the ability to participate, to cooperate with God in some kind of eternal bargaining. And, and Luther rejected that because, again, Augustine rejected that, Paul rejected that, the whole New Testament rejects this idea. And so he begins to attack this. There becomes this political upheaval. Luther is literally, they try to kill him several points in his life. But he never actually writes a systematic theology about it. This is what's interesting about him. He never actually writes a definitive work that explains Augustinian thought. That task is left to the Genevan reformer by the name of John, John Calvin. Calvin. John Calvin wrote The Institutes of the Christian Religion, and in this, he unpacks the, the Augustinian view of salvation. Um, it's funny because Calvin is usually pegged for uh, or criticized for a doctrine called predestination. Um, but, but here's what's interesting is the Institutes is the first place, Calvin is the first person to separate in writing the difference between justification and sanctification. Now, here's why that's important. Up to this point, the Catholic Church taught that salvation was not an event, but that it was a process. So in, in our church, we believe the scriptures teach that when you are born again, it is an immediate moment in which God declares you just, 
righteous, forgiven, all the things that we're going to actually talk about here in a moment. And that's when justification happens. That's when it happens. And it is over with. And you are free and forgiven from all past, present, and future sins. You stand as a child of God, like we sang that rock and song right after the welcome. I'm a child of God. The Catholic Church taught that salvation was a process that you began but did not end until you died. Thus, the need for participating with the sacraments throughout your life. Because if you stop that, the salvation process ends and you fall away from faith. So Calvin is the first person that separates these biblical concepts and says, no, justification by faith is an event. Sanctification is what takes place after that by which God is, is in the process of shaping his children who are fully forgiven, fully just, but, but pretty ugly still, right? And in, <laughs> and in need of a facelift <laughs> to become more like Jesus. Need a little transformation. Right, yeah. right. Uh, Romans 12 so, so this is a monumental moment, and, and, and this sets in motion a, a spark in the Protestant Reformation, something that we are the beneficiaries of. We are a part of the Reformation movement. Now, after Calvin dies, another... One of his disciples of his teachings comes onto the scene, a man by the name of Jacobus Arminius, and he begins to challenge Calvin's teachings. It's interesting, um, we pit them together as like mortal enemies. Arminius actually went to the grave saying that he was a disciple of Calvin. He just disagreed with some of Calvin's approaches. He dies before his teachings really take off, but his followers become known historically, we call them the remonstrants. They produce five statements of doctrine regarding salvation that come out of this Arminian thought, and they take them to a council. So let me just explain something to you. In, in church history, whenever you have a debate over a specific doctrine that was not very clear, you didn't like meet at high noon and draw on one another, right? This wasn't the Wild West. There wasn't like a gang, it wasn't gangs of New York, right? They would take these things to a council of church leaders where it would be debated where it would be debated, and they would work through it, and in the end, they would determine which of these positions was biblical and orthodox, meaning what the church is going to accept as truth, and which was heresy. Okay, this happened with Augustine and Pelagius. They chose Augustine. This happens again with Calvinism and Arminianism. They bring it to a particular council called the Synod of Dort, and let me give you their five points. This is the Arminians. They bring this to the council. They say, we want you to consider this. Number one, that God conditionally elects individuals according to their foreseen faith. So what they said was God elects those who he could look into the future and see they were going to choose him. So God says, well, since they're going to choose me, I'll, I'll choose go ahead and them. choose them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, Christ died for the sins of the whole world, every single person. Number three, no one has the power within himself to turn to God without the assistance of God's grace. So that you can turn to God, you just need a little boost. Okay? It's synergism. Right. We work together on this. Number four, God's grace can be resisted. So you can, if the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your heart, you can say no. And number five, it is possible for a Christian to lose his salvation. These are the five remonstrant or Arminian well, it points. it makes sense. If you, if you get it by choice, then you can lose it by choice. Give it up by choice. The Synod of Dort meets in 1618 to 1619. They debate over this. I mean, this is a year-long process. And this is what they say. They reject the Arminian approach as Pelagianism, which has already been condemned as heresy <laughs> a thousand years prior to this. And this is their five responses. Number one, man is totally depraved. Sinners are incapable 
of their, in their own power to come to God. Number two, the unconditional election. God elects not based on what he sees in the future, but on his own character. It has nothing to do with you. It has only to do with God. Number three, limited atonement. Christ died for his elect. This is the one that trips most people up. Yeah. Number four, irresistible grace. The Holy Spirit works irresistibly in the hearts of the elect. In other words, if God is going to call you to him, you're not going to say no. It's irresistible. And number five, perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly saved will remain saved for the duration of their lives. If, if they didn't get salvation by choice, you can't You get can't it lose it. Exactly. This forms what we call the tulip that James mentioned. Now, a couple of important things I want to say here. A few, few closing things. Number one... That's an, an acronym. An acronym, yeah. Um, the acronym is not a Calvinism acronym. It is a synod of Dort acronym. That's an important distinction, okay? We always just chalk this up to Calvinism. Calvinism didn't write this. Synod of Dort did, okay? But let me just say three things in response to this, because some of you are, are probably swimming in the vast ocean trying to figure out where you are in all of this. But some of you have already formed opinions on this. Some of you trend more towards one. Some of you trend more towards the other. And so we would be willing to bet, if I was a betting man, if I were to ask you, do you believe in choice or sovereign will, the vast majority of you would say, well, choice. Choice, because that's because, the, the because human... That, that's the human response yeah. without really digging in deep, and it is very prevalent. So let me say, let me say three things, and then we'll move to the, what the cross accomplishes here. Number one, I think it's important to remember that these arguments are not arguments between Calvin and Arminius. They were dead by this point. Both of them had died, right? This is a historical argument. It's a historical argument. It's an argument that takes place historically in our faith that adapted one of these teachings as truth and condemned the other as heresy. See, the, the Christian community has always grappled with truth. And for 2,000 years, we're still grappling with it today, are we not? What is true and what is of man? So what we're giving you here is not just a bunch of people enjoying fighting, but it really is people saying, <clears throat> what is the truth of God's word? And there has been division about it, so it has had to be decided at times. And, and it's decided historically by a group of learned, seasoned, mature Christian leaders who are students of the word, who all come together in agreement that yes, based on our walk with Jesus and our study of the scripture, this is the truth and this is error, okay? It doesn't mean that the, er the error is like an evil person or that we're gonna burn him at the stake or anything like that. It's just settling well, a debate. they did a few times. Sometimes, <laughs> but, not, but not at this point. Roman Catholics were pretty good about burning folks at the normally, stake. <laughs> more, normally more like witches and just, you know, people like that. But let me, hold on, hold on. Let, okay, me, let uh, me just finish it. Okay, Number ahead. two. Uh, if Arminianism, if you, are, if you trend more towards Arminianism, then I have to say this to you, you are also Pelagian in your view. And that is a problem, because Pelagianism is just outright heresy. It was condemned as heresy. It has been heresy for over a thousand years. And, and so it really denies the, Pelagian denied the clearest teaching of Paul in right, the New Testament, right. that we are dead in trespasses and sins, folks. There's no good in us. But let me say this third, because I think this is an important thing for you to hear. Both parties are welcome here at City on a Hill. Both of you are welcome. If you fall more in the, the Arminian-Pelagian side, as you can probably tell, James and I don't, um, if you fall into this camp, at the end of the day, here's what I would say to you as your pastor. Number one, history is stacked against you pretty heavily. You need to, you need to wrestle with that. Uh, number two, you're going to have a very difficult time reckoning with a great number of New Testament passages, okay? 
And number three, you're going to sit under teachers of the word who, who oppose this view. But if you can wrestle with those things and not create division, then this is not an issue. It's not an issue of, of whether or not you believe one thing or another. It's an issue of whether or not you create a problem in the clear teaching and direction of the church. And, and this is understanding these things is not required in order to come to faith in Christ and be born again. Yeah. No. You, Christ died on the cross for my sins. I repent of my sins and turn to Christ in faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You are a Christian. This is Christian struggling for what is the full truth of God. Okay? And if what Derek is saying is the Arminian view is going to leave so many gaps of yes. understanding in Scripture for you as a believer as you try to go deeper into the Word of God, you're going to find so many inconsistencies. But when you can come to this place of, of Augustinian theology, which is biblical theology, it opens up a door of understanding of so many other aspects of Scripture that are an anomaly to the Arminian who just doesn't have anything. And I will tell you how I came to my position about the sovereignty of God in salvation. It was not in seminary because I was trained in an Armenian seminary. I was trained where virtually all the professors were Armenian. When I got to Florida, my first pastorate, teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of John. <laughs> and I started coming to these passages in the Gospel of John. If I'm going to be a responsible exegete of the Scripture, how do I, do I can't this? just jump over this. You did not choose me. I chose you. Before, you know, I can't, I gotta, what does that mean? And I didn't have, an, my Arminian view didn't have an answer for that. And, and it was stood right in the face of that. And so as a responsible, wanting the truth, I exegeted the scripture for two solid years, teaching through verse by verse through the gospel of John and had to change my understanding. Yep. Because my understanding was against everything that John had said in the gospel of John. Then I went into the apostle Paul and I went, oh my gosh, this is everywhere. How did I miss this? So this is important for your deeper understanding of theological truths. It is not important that, whether you can be saved or not. No. Okay? I was born again the whole time I had this free will, free choice idea. But my understanding and depth of biblical theology went to whole different places once I was able to release my pride of that and say, you know what? I was flat wrong. That's right. And the Scripture has convicted me of it. So... That's good. Now, Thank you God. go, wow, I went to this church, first-time guests, and all they did was talk about history. Yep. Well, that's important. It is. That's important that you understand that we're not talking about these things in a vacuum. Christians have been grappling with these issues for 2,000 years for holding on to the truth of God because the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so all of the time there is this pull on us to go away from orthodoxy, from clear biblical teaching into these other little side issues. And every time that we do, we end up bankrupt. That's right. And so we wanted to give you that little background for the next 15 minutes, if we can do it now, I think we can. to go and give you four words Four words that are very important. If you will learn these words and their meaning and the scripture that backs them up, you will have a deeper understanding of how God, who is righteous and holy and just, can declare unrighteous, unholy, and unjust sinners to be just. How can that happen? Is he not unjust if he declares someone who is unjust just? <laughs> He would be. So, his nature will not be violated. 
So he did some things in the salvific process by which to make it possible for him to not violate his nature and character when he saved a slob like me. Okay? So let's talk about it very quickly. I'm, we're going to do this real quick. Okay, we're going to do it? Let's do it. All right. Yeah, it's three words. Minutes. Sure. It's three, it's right. three okay. words. Three words. Four no, words. Not four. Three. Four. What's, what's your fourth? You only have three in your notes. Reconciliation. That's yours. No, redemption is me. I know. Here we go. We do this together, but I was out of town a little bit, so we'll, we'll work this thing out, we got okay? It. All right, here we go. Fifteen minutes. Let's the go. The first one is propitiation. We do know what we're doing. We did talk about this. Propitiation, okay? In the Old Testament, the word atonement is dominant. How many of you heard the word atonement? It's all through the Old Testament. Atonement is the translation of the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover. Mm -hmm. It's the same word that is used when Noah covered the ark with pitch so that it would not leak and, and wouldn't sick. That's the word that is translated atonement in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, they had to offer sacrifices over and over and over. And each year during the atonement, during the Passover, was the day of atonement. And that was the day when the high priest of Israel would go into the inner sanctum, into the Holy of Holies, one time a year, one day a year, only one man, the, holy, the high priest, and he would offer sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat there over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies for the sins of the whole nation. Every year when the Day of Atonement came, he would go in and he would do that again. And it was called the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering. Okay? And that's very important that you remember that. And each year, the high priest had to do that over and over again. Why? Because animal sacrifices could not forgive sin. These were animal sacrifices. They could not fully forgive sin. Why is that? Because they were not voluntary sacrifices, they were animal sacrifices, and they were not perfect sacrifices as a perfect God would require. Okay? So, that's atonement in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, the word atonement disappears virtually, and I'll talk about that in just a second. And it is replaced by the word I just gave you, which is propitiation. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says... Therefore, he, speaking of Christ, had to be made like his brethren, like us, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Listen, this is viewing Jesus as the high priest going into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But it says he didn't make atonement as he went in this time, as Jesus did, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the NIV, how many of you have the NIV? The NIV translates that word atonement, and that was a big controversy when the NIV was translated because that is not the full meaning of the word. It's not totally wrong, it's just not the full meaning of the New Testament concept of propitiation, which is the Greek word. Where atonement meant to cover, propitiation means to satisfy. Mm -hmm. So when you read your NIV and it says atonement, just substitute propitiation because that's what it really means. The point is that Jesus' sacrifice did more 
than what the Old Testament atonement did because they had to do it every year. Why? Because it wasn't satisfying the wrath of God against sin. It was just pushing it forward. It was delaying it. It was delaying it one more year. That's why they had to do it every year because if they didn't, the wrath of God was going to come upon sin. So every year they made atonement. They covered the sin for another year and then they had to do it again and they had to do it again. But the scripture says that when Jesus came, he didn't make atonement for sin. He made propitiation for sin and the wrath of God against that sin. Are you with me? In Romans chapter 3, verse 24 through 25, Paul alludes to this. He says, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now get this. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. He's referring to Old Testament atonement, right? God was passing over. It was pushing it forward. But Jesus didn't make atonement. Jesus made propitiation. That's why Jesus only died once and there is no more sacrifice for sin. For He fully satisfied the wrath of God against sin. Are you Mm. with me? Okay. So in God's divine forbearance, He was pushing His wrath forward every year at the Day of Atonement for the Old Testament saints. But in Christ, Jesus said, no more, one time, I will take the wrath of God against sin. I will propitiate the wrath of God, and God will not have to forbear His wrath anymore. Isn't that cool? So good. So in Christ, God's wrath toward sin is done. God is not passing over it anymore. It's not covered anymore. It's not pushed forward anymore. It is satisfied. Okay? Now, let's move very quickly then to redemption. Redemption, there's two ways of understanding redemption, the word redemption. One is to purchase something with payment. I did my part. You did. I took five minutes. That was hurry great. You tur- hurry up. Don't interrupt me then, and I will. How about that? So purchase with a payment. You buy it either with money or a gift card. If you've ever had a coupon, you'll see something like a redeem here or a redemption center for it. The other way you can understand it is to pay a ransom. And this is how the New Testament understands it better, that, that something that belongs to you has been taken from you captive, and in order to get it back, you have to pay a, a, a price some kind of payment in order to receive it back. This is what happens in Exodus. If you remember, the people of God, led by Abraham and his, his sons, end up eventually by Joseph in Egypt. But by the beginning of Exodus, Pharaoh had taken them captive. They were enslaved under Pharaoh's reign in Egypt. And God calls Moses to go, and what does he say? Let my people go. And, and he sends the plagues. Remember, the tenth plague is the blood of the unblemished lamb that covers the doorpost of the Israelite home so that when the angel of death comes, it passes over them, hence the Passover, and protects them. Yeah, it's the first Passover ever. This whole story eventually leads them out of bondage and back into the possession of Yahweh. In other words, the blood of the unblemished lamb ransoms, redeems the people back to God. Out of Egypt. Now, this pictures, of course... Jesus, the Passover lamb, who doesn't just pay for our captivity in a land, but pays for our captivity from sin, that we no longer belong to sin, but are redeemed back to himself. His blood purchases that for us. This is why when Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, this is what led Augustine, right, to develop his theology, but that we are justified by his grace through what? The redemption That is in Christ Jesus, who propitiated our sins. You see how this all fits together? 
Christ satisfies the wrath of God, and his blood serves as a payment to redeem us back. I want you to imagine for a moment, you're in a grocery store, and, uh, and you are not the shopper, you are the produce. And there's only one shopper in the entire grocery store, and that's Jesus. No one else is there. No one else is purchasing any of the produce, because all of us as produce are rotten, right? We're the bananas that are black and mushy. We're the, the apples that have, have worms in them. Those so this is, tomatoes this, is, nobody would this buy. is clearly not central market. This is more like Walmart, right? So the, <laughs> the things are really bad for us, but Jesus purchases us in our rotten condition. Why? Because he seeks to redeem us back to himself. And it is in his changing power, of course, that we eventually become better looking, but that doesn't come to the end. Number three. Okay. I'll do three and four. Um, oh, I, I got four. I got you. Uh, okay, I got it. Okay, You're okay. good. All right. So we're talking about how can God, if we are fully depraved, if we are dead in trespasses and sins, we cannot make spiritual choices for ourselves. So God must sovereignly do this through the work of His Holy Spirit. Yeah. How, but, we're, but we're still sinners. We're still sinners. So how can He, as a just God, declare Him who is unjust, right with a just God. Well, first of all, his wrath against sin has to be propitiated, not just covered, not just pushed ahead, but dealt with and satisfied. He did that in the cross. Then this ransom price, the blood of Jesus, where Peter says you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood yeah. of Jesus. So we are redeemed out of our bondage to sin and slavery and death. And then that's still not enough. Nope. If, even if God's wrath is propitiated, if the redemption price has been paid, we are still unrighteous. He has to deal with that. So the scripture says, then is the third word, imputation. He imputed Christ's righteousness to us when we, when we place our faith and trust in Christ. Because you see, no matter what God does, no matter how much His wrath is propitiated, no matter what the price He pays, we're still unrighteous, unjust. So therefore, He must impute to us real righteousness, and that's what He does in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, major, majorly important verse of Scripture for you to understand. Yes. God made Him who knew no sin, who's He talking about? Jesus. To become sin. On our behalf. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, folks, take that verse apart for just a moment. He says that he made Christ who had no sin. He, he had no sin. Jesus didn't, listen, Jesus didn't just take our sin upon himself. He became our sin on the cross. God imputed your sin and my sin to Jesus. And as Jesus died on the cross, He was accomplishing these three things. He was propitiating the wrath of God against sin. Why? Because He became my sin. He was redeeming me because His blood was perfect and precious so He could redeem me out of, out of ransom. And in return... As my sin was imputed upon him, he became my sin. God took the righteousness of Jesus. I know this is theologically deep, folks, but you've got to appreciate what this means. He imputed the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to me. He didn't just cover me with the righteousness of Jesus. He imputed it to me. We became I became it. righteous. Yeah. I became righteous. 
as Jesus became sin on the cross. That is by divine imputation. Now you go, but I'm not perfect. It doesn't matter. It is how God sees you. When He sees you, He sees you in the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that you and I are able to enter into this perfect relationship with a perfect God. Because He has imputed to us righteousness. Now, when the Father looked on Jesus on the cross, He saw my sin. When the Father looks upon me today, He sees His Son's righteousness. Christ's righteousness. That's how He can be just by redeeming the unjust because He's declared me by imputation to be just. Not my justice, not my righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ of the Scriptures who later on says, that is in me. That's right. That is in me. That's right. Now, you want me to wrap this up? I do. Let me, let me, let me give you this. Okay. So, remember we're asking this question. How can a righteous God justly save those who are unjust, or those who are unrighteous? By the work He did on the cross. Mm -hmm. By God's wrath being propitiated in Christ's sacrifice. By Christ's sacrifice, by His blood, paying, paying the ransom price, paying the redemption price to purchase me out, and by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to me, who is unrighteous, it made it possible for Him to do the fourth thing, which is... Reconciliation. To reconcile us. So the word reconcile in Greek, katalaso, it's a word that implies a, a bridge being built between enemies. It's not a... Um, you don't reconcile good relationships. You reconcile bad ones. And so because God's wrath is satisfied, because our sin has been paid for, and we now are righteous and can stand before Him, we now can be reconciled, brought back together in right standing, in a right relationship with God. Up to this point, God's wrath has been satisfied. He's destroyed with His wrath the sin that Jesus became on the cross. He has purchased us out of captivity from sin and death. He has made us righteous, but we're still standing in opposite camps. He now has set all the pieces in play where he can say, okay, now come to me. Now we can come. Now we can be reconciled. Now we can have right standing with God. This is why when we appeal to you, and some of you today who, who maybe have never trusted Christ in, in your life, this is why we say be reconciled to God. You can have a relationship, that's what we say, a relationship with God. You don't have a relationship with God outside of Christ. You are what? A child of wrath. He talks a about child the time, of Satan. The time when we were formerly alienated. Formerly alienated. Yeah, from the promises Hostile of God. towards God. Rebellious towards God. All the things that we've been talking about the last couple weeks with regard to sin and Satan, we are at odds and at war with God. But that by faith in Christ, all of these things can be undone and right standing with him can happen. And not just because he goes, okay, we can get along now. No. He did what was necessary. He did what was necessary. It was a very strategic approach to bringing sinners back to himself. And none of that was done on our part. No. We didn't do any of it. He does all of the work. For us. And then the scripture says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. Listen, and that is not even your own. It is a gift of God. Yep. He even has to give me the ability to trust Him. 
I don't even have that. I'm dead in trespasses and sins. So he must intervene and sovereignly give me that. And all to whom he gives that faith will trust Christ. That is the irresistible grace of God. Mm. And it is done not upon our merit, not your merit, not anyone's merit. It is done upon the sovereign will and the purpose of God. We have gone deeper on this, and we could spend weeks and weeks on this. They're like, please don't. (laughs) But we wanted to give you a, a historical viewpoint. Why do we hammer this stuff so much here, folks? Because we are all the time within the Christian faith fighting for the truth. Because there are always those who want to lure us away from, there are all those Pelagians, there are all of those that are, you know, works oriented, there are all of those that, you know, just trust Jesus and He'll give you a mansion and, and a Cadillac and a Mercedes and all, we're all the time fighting and fighting, fighting for the truth of God's Word. And the moment that we refuse to look in the mirror, and admit the truth of what God says about every single one of us the second we are born into this world, that we are born not children of God, we are born children of the devil, we are seeds of Satan, we are children of wrath, we are totally depraved, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Until you're willing to look in the mirror and admit that, you're always going to twist the Scripture around. And again, I I will say this, we did a funeral this past week, and it was a recovery-oriented funeral. And I said to that crowd, I said, you know, I obviously don't like doing funerals. It's never a, a fun thing. But if I had to choose the kind of funeral to do, I would choose a recovery-oriented funeral any day of the week. You know why? Because when I say things like that, that there's nothing we can do to come to God on our own, that we are totally depraved, that we are broken and incapable of anything good, most of the crowd in those, in those funerals are also in recovery, and they know that's true because that's been their life experience. That's the first step of AA. It's the, religious, <laughs> it's the religious people who want to look the part and dress the part and pretend like everything is okay that has the most problem with accepting the things we've talked about these last three weeks because you haven't come to the end of yourself yet. You, you're, not, you're not ready to admit that maybe I am capable of the unthinkable. And it's not a maybe, it's a definite. And that I am in Christ today by grace, by complete grace, no activity on my part at all, for I could give nothing. That does not raise pride, that raises humility. That's right. That's right. Before Him. Mm. Thank you, Lord Mm. Jesus, for your unmitigated grace. I am nothing. Grace is everything. 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 Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll take these words today and help your people to grasp, to understand, to look beyond the the veil of what we've heard, what we've been taught, and just simply let your word speak for itself. Thank you for the cross of Jesus where it was all accomplished. Your wrath on my sin was propitiated. The price for my redemption was paid in the blood of Jesus. The imputation of righteousness was given so that I could stand before you without pride but on my face in humility because of the reconciliation that you have provided in the cross. We pray this for someone in this room today Mm -hmm. that has never bowed their heart fully before you, never understood the wretched depraved, evil heart before by your Holy Spirit to recognize that and be drawn to you. 
and take Christ. But we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, wretched sinners. We'll see you next time. You wretched sinners that are now declared righteous. That's right.